If you've got a Bible with you, whether that's in print or on your phone or whatever, uh, turn to Acts 6. That's where we're going to uh, be today. Um, I remember laying on my bed as a boy, writhing in pain. I don't, I don't want to like be dramatic, but I, my knees and my legs would just ache. And uh, it, it, at times, it would lead me to tears. And uh, I would hear later, or, you know, that it was growing pains. You know, how many of you have experienced that or had kids or whatever? And it seems like there's no real cause. And even to call, call it growing pain seems a little bit strange. It's like you're growing and that hurts, you know? And I, some people even kind of... Uh, oppose that idea, but whatever. Uh, Growing pains has become a real common metaphor for the challenges and the hardship that comes with growth of any kind. So like I just kind of started going through my story and like middle school, do I need to say anything else, (laughs) right? Um, My first job, like the, the, what that required of me was painful. Uh, marriage, huge gift, wonderful blessing. Growing pains, for sure, right? And then you start throwing kids in the mix. Multiplication. It's hard. And then it, it's not just a personal thing, but we know like organizationally, if you've been in a, a, a company or something of any kind, as it grows, they experience growing pains, don't they? Here in our city, this city has absolutely transformed in the last 23 years that we've been here. How many of you experienced traffic in Murfreesboro? right? Growing pains of a growing city. And the very same thing is true of churches. Churches, if they're growing, cannot get around the pains that are associated with that kind of growth. And that's exactly what we're going to see today as we look in Acts. Now, up to this point, let me just remind us We started with 12, right? The 12 disciples. In Acts 1.15, we were told there was a company of persons all about 120 or so. Shift to Acts 4, we find out that the number of men came to about 5,000. And so you do need to throw spouses in there and family. So that could have been as many as 15,000 in what would have been considered the church, as it was starting. Acts 5.14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So the church grew explosively. It's really astounding. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 1, and and actually from there up to chapter 8, verse 3, We're going to see two pain points in the church. One is internal and one is external. Uh, Think about our portrait of a connected life. Uh, One of these growing pains is going to be related to connecting withward with the body. The other one is going to be connected with going outward 
with the mission. But both of them are going to be incredibly painful for this growing church. And I have something I want us to think about as we're reading about this early church. If growing pains are inevitable, and I believe that they are, are we willing to endure the pain of becoming all that God intends? Or do we limit our engagement so that we can limit the amount of growth and limit the growth pains that would be associated with that? Just something I want us to think about as we look at this passage. Now, chapter six, verse one, here's the opening phrase. Now in these days, and this is just shortly after um, Pentecost and some of those earliest things we've been studying. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, he's, Luke is trying to give us a benchmark here, the church is growing and before we see what's happening at the very same time, just remind us, no elegant strategy here. There was no such thing as a church growth movement. There were no books that had been written yet. It was just simply God's people doing what God said. That really was it. And, and they were just talking about the risen Christ. There wasn't a whole lot more to say at that point. It was like, we knew Jesus, he rose again, and here's what he said about living. Make disciples, that was the instruction, right? Cultivate connected followers of Christ. That's all they're doing, and they're increasing in numbers. Now, what's next? A complaint. Like, come on, man. I mean, everything's going so well. We're growing like crazy. But a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I'll talk more about that in a minute. That is the first organizational growing pain of the church in Jerusalem. And it, everything is going well but, but this issue comes up and the word to describe it according to the Hellenists was negligence. Now it's tempting to jump to conclusions. I read that word and I have thoughts about that. Negligence can be a product of irresponsibility. It can also be the effect of just simply being overwhelmed or unaware. And it did make me think that you got two groups of people here. One is raising a complaint against the other. And do you guys know those stories that we tell ourselves about the things that we're experiencing and especially those hard things? And we can start attaching all kinds of motives and accusations and all that kind of stuff. So the Hellenists could be saying those mean old Hebrews, they don't care about our widows. Or they could be simply saying, we have grown beyond any of our imaginations and growing things can get pretty chaotic, pretty demanding. Maybe there was just like, maybe the leaders just missed something. We should probably bring that to their attention. 
You see the difference there? I don't know which it is. Some commentators really try to make a big cultural divide here. That may be true. I'm going to tell you why. I don't think that it is. But nevertheless, connecting withward with the body is challenging, especially the larger that body gets. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So let's look at the complaint. Hellenists and Hebrews, those are actually two cultures of Jews. The Hellenists are Greek-speaking, and and most likely they're not long-term residents of Jerusalem or Palestine. They were off in other parts of the known world, and because those other parts were led by Romans, they spoke Greek. Thus, they're called Hellenists. Hebrews would have been Aramaic-speaking Jews, and they probably grew up in and around Jerusalem. Now, before their conversion to Christianity, which just happened, maybe just months ago, before that, these two groups of people, they wouldn't have been at at odds with each other, but they probably would have lived separately when they came into Jerusalem for the feasts because they speak different languages. So you might even have multiple synagogues. You've got some that are speaking Greek and some that are speaking Hebrew, and it's okay. There's no animosity there. Now, you take those two groups of people, they come to Christ, and they're thrown together in one organization called the church. And now they got to get through a lot of issues around uh, cultural traditions and certainly language. And they, they both had all kinds of systems and practices and stuff in place. They've been estranged from their Jewish community and they're thrown together with a whole bunch of people, many of whom would have been strangers. And they're supposed to just get along and figure it out. And you know what? They did initially. Let let me take you back, Acts 4, 32 through 35. Here's what it said. They, speaking of all of these people, Jews primarily who had come to Christ, Hellenists and Hebrews, they had everything in common. Amazing. There was not a needy person among them. That's what Luke says. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Now, just notice something here. You would have to own land in order to sell it, right? How many of the people that you think came from some other part of the Roman world owned land in Jerusalem? None. So the Hebrews are actually the ones that are selling their property and their stuff probably to support these people who have come. They're Jews, and now they're believers. They've come into Jerusalem. So the people in Jerusalem are selling their stuff to help their brothers and sisters whom they don't know get by. That's why I'm not quite sure that this is a huge cultural divide. That's what's described in Acts 4. Then we come to Acts 6, we have a complaint. There's neglect. And as I look at it, I go, well, despite good intentions and good systems, there were some systems in place. There was a daily distribution that was intended to care for people. But again, there's explosive growth. 
And so the bottom line is there were some Hellenist widows being neglected and the Hebrews were called upon to facilitate change. That's what we know for sure. Let's not write any stories that, that import things that don't need to be imported into the text. What happens is the 12, the apostles, they do exactly what good leaders should do. They make a course correction. They pull everybody together. Look at verse two. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So let's just make some observations. The 12 are leading in unison. They're a team. And they seem to be in perfect agreement here. Their engagement showed an appreciation for the gravity of the situation. They didn't blow it off. They didn't minimize it. They responded like, we need to do something about this. They acknowledged their own limitations. They, they basically admitted that their capacity to adequately serve this growing church, it had gone beyond them. They protected their leadership priorities, which here it's listed as prayer and preaching, and affirmed the priority of care, serving tables, and they just simply said, we can't do both. So what we need is additional leaders. And I, you've probably heard this phrase before, but have you heard of the idea of the next one up kind of philosophy? It's basically the idea that, and a lot of times it's used in athletics, but it's like, hey, as we're doing whatever we're doing, inevitably things are gonna happen to the people who are doing it. And that's why we've got a larger team than what's actually required. Maybe let's just use athletics on the field of play. So there's always somebody ready to step in and step up when the need uh, requires it. That's, it. It's the exact same thing in the church. Like we ought to be full of people. Not everybody leads, but everybody ought to be growing personally so that they can step in and step up whenever the need arises. It's a great Challenge for all of us, are we personally making ourselves by grace through faith, but are we making ourselves ready for whatever the church needs us to be and to do whenever the church needs us to be it and do it? It's a great challenge. The leaders here, they outlined a process for solving the problem. And I love that they involved the congregation. They didn't just start giving out assignments and barking orders and all that. They, they invited the congregation in. And here's what they said. Pick from among you, which essentially meant to recommend, find some men in your midst who can step into this role of caring for these neglected widows so that we can continue to do what God has assigned us to do to pray and to preach. 
There's a great principle here in terms of finding leadership. And we've actually said this from the very beginning. We don't, I'll just speak for elders. We don't appoint elders. We don't just kind of look around and go, maybe who's giving a lot or who's real popular with the church or who seems to have a real kind of forceful personality or whatever. No, what we look for as far as elders is, we look for guys who are already eldering. They do it without the title. They serve and care and love and encourage and shepherd and disciple. They're just already doing it. And, and if we find an elder, and this, is, this has been the case every single time we have brought somebody up on this stage and commended them to you as a potential elder, everybody's always just went, of course. Like, it just makes perfect sense. We, we've already seen them doing that. And now we're just acknowledging it as a community of faith. That's the idea here. Notice the qualifications. It's not skill-based. It's primarily around their character and their maturity in verse 3. They're to be of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and that means that it is discernible, like you can observe the activity of the Spirit in the man's life. It's not just that you go, man, I, I'm assuming he's got the Spirit going on there. But it's, it's obvious, the presence and enabling power of God in his life. He's full of wisdom. And that is applying the truth of God to everyday life. Not just his opinions. He's not just a, a smart, sharp guy. You know that there is an integration between what he understands from God's word and how he lives his life day in and day out. Those are the qualifications here. By the way, this anticipates probably the role of deacon, but it isn't the inauguration of that role. Um, some will point to this and say, there they are, deacons. Well, not yet. They'll get there. This is probably a, a step in that direction. But making these kinds of adjustments makes for the continuity that the church needs. And that's where we find, what's what we find in verse five. It says, what they, the leaders said, pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Here's the continuity. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I do wonder if those leaders had said, hey guys, I mean, we're okay. Let's not get all uptight. Let's just kind of keep doing what we're doing because, you know, it's been working. It's been working just fine. Well, let's not change anything because we don't want to mess anything up. Do you think the church would have continued to grow explosively beyond that? Or were they simply saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to make adjustments. We're going to adapt 
to whatever growth God brings and that will inevitably make us ready for whatever additional growth God may bring. We're just gonna always be ready for that and let him do as he pleases with us. I think that was their heart. It it is interesting to me that the vast, vast majority of churches in America have 75 people or less and they stay that way. I'm not being critical, I'm just trying to make an observation. Are they doing everything that God has called them to do? And it seems if they were, that that would, that would just inevitably lead to growth and the growing pains that come with it. And maybe those churches are not as interested in the growing pains. I don't know, but maybe so. We know that there was here church-wide unity around this initiative. Everybody together said, yes, let's, let's go for that. Seven men were recommended. Six of them, this is interesting, are Hellenists. They're not Hebrews. They're the outsiders. They're the ones that came into town, but they are put in these roles of responsibility. Maybe because they had the best take on the need that had been raised. And then one of these is a Gentile. That's pretty interesting. The apostles then approved and commissioned the new leaders. And in verse seven, ministry expands. Even reaching the religious leaders who had previously been jealous and enraged. They're reaching the very ones that crucified Jesus, threatened Peter and John, And now we're coming after the church. So they've walked through an internal growing pain and then the narrative shifts to an external growing pain in the form of suppression. Suppression. And and kind of where we're sitting, that should be no surprise, but it is interesting to me that Paul wrote in Romans 1.18, kind of way down the road from what we're reading about today, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's exactly what's happening here. And and I just wanna plant a little seed that's kind of interesting. Paul is not Paul in this moment. But it's very likely, I would say very probable that he is there. And that's going to be interesting in what we're going to read next. But Paul is Saul, and he knows all about suppressing the truth. He was at the tip of the spear going after the church. And he writes later, that's what unbelievers do. They can't help themselves. In this moment, the truth was being proclaimed by a spirit-filled spokesman named Stephen. Look at verse eight. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, he had been one of those seven guys that had been installed as this next generation of leadership. We find in verses three and verse eight that he was full. That's a key word. And that word means to be controlled by or characterized by. Like full means 
it's evident in you. And the things that were mentioned in both of those verses, faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, power, and wisdom. And we can assume he had a good reputation, but I would say he had a reputation of being full. That's what they saw in his life. That's why they commended him to the 12. He's one of those guys. But he's a regular guy. That's what I love about Stephen. You don't read about him anywhere else in our New Testament. This is it. And it's gonna be short. He's just like you and me. Full of the Holy Spirit, of grace, mercy, power, wisdom. It honestly made me think, what are you and I known for? So th this is what Stephen was known for. What are you and I known for? If, if somebody had to introduce you to a stranger, what would they say about you? What would they say about me? I know what I would want them to say about me. And I'll bet you would want the same things said of you. Stephen... He's doing great wonders and signs, and I'm assuming he is speaking as well. And so all that he is doing sets off a spirited debate. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia... By the way, these are the Hellenist Jews who have not yet been converted they rose up and disputed with Stephen. I think we might see that and immediately think they're just picking a fight. And maybe they were. But sometimes I think we're so afraid of this that we just never engage. But what's wrong with a good debate? What's wrong with sitting down with somebody and going, tell me what you think. And then I'm gonna tell you what I think. And we may think differently, we may disagree, and that's okay. Because the bottom line is, you're gonna live your life based on what you think and believe, and I'm gonna do the same. But we can, we can sure sit down and, and uh, hash it out. We're, we're not told what Stephen said here, we're gonna be told in uh, next week what he says. But he struck a nerve and they challenged him. And I tried to think of what, what was that conversation like? And again, we don't know, but someone could have said, well, what about the law? That was one of their favorite topics. And Stephen may have said, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, something that none of us could do. The law was never meant to make us acceptable. It was actually meant to show us our need. So then you're saying that we don't need to obey the law. Stephen would go, no, that's not what I said. <laughs> I'm saying that obedience to the law is actually a response of faith, not a means of getting acceptance with God. Somebody else says, Moses wrote that if we would only keep the commandments, we would live. Stephen says, you know, King David wrote 
God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Can you sense the tension? These guys are getting tired of it. Maybe one of them just says, you know what, sounds pretty hopeless to me. And then Stephen kind of lights up. Yes! <laughs> it is hopeless apart from Christ. That's the point. Again, think of Saul in the room. The greatest theologian, humanly speaking, in our New Testament. He was in the room. And here's what Luke tells us in verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Not even Saul. It, it just defied everything that they had oriented their life around. It was all about performance. Trying to somehow impress God, maybe even obligate him in some way. It's lifeless religion. Ironically, you heard me mention that one group of these was called the freedmen. Those, those probably were Jews who, again, had been in other parts of the world, enslaved for some reason or another. They had gained their freedom and returned to Jerusalem. So they were faithful Jews, but they were called freedmen because they had once been enslaved. And yet, ironically, it's funny that they're called freedmen, but they are enslaved to the law and to the death that comes with it. And we know that because they devise a sinister plot against poor Stephen. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, as if Moses and God are equal there. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, speaking of the temple and the law. For we have heard him say this, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's funny, all of their accusations, I, I don't know that Stephen went after any of that, but what they felt was he was taking away all of the tools that they had to control the people they led. And it made them furious. And I thought they were threatened by a version of God who could not be controlled. And, and grace, the idea of grace eliminates our ability to obligate God, right? It's a gift. And that kind of, in a strange way, it makes people mad because they want to be able to say, I did this, it was enough, and God, you owe me. And, and if you say, hey, all of that stuff doesn't really matter, it just makes them mad. That's what grace does. It renders us powerless. So the crowd 
is enraged and yet at the eye of the storm, in the midst of excruciating, external, growing pains, look at Stephen, perfectly calm. Kenneth Gangle says this, no anger, no fear, no bitterness, instead a quiet confidence, peace, security, and courage obviously brought about by the presence of the Holy Spirit and God's grace in his life. What a contrast. It's serenity. That's what Stephen is experiencing even while everything is breaking loose around him. And then verse 15, an interesting observation that was made. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council, that would have been the Sanhedrin and then all of these Hellenist Jews, they saw that his face was like that, like the face of an angel. And that would have kind of recalled like Moses when he met with God. Remember his face shone with glory. Jesus at the transfiguration, that's the association being made here. Daryl Box says, Stephen has the appearance of one inspired by and in touch with God, reflecting a touch of God's glory. He is at utter peace, even while violence is all around him. Uh, D.L. Moody wrote this years ago, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. Isaiah 26 says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I believe Stephen knew that, believed that, perhaps even rehearsed that in his own mind while under attack and was able just to stay at peace. The amount of peace we experience in this broken world, I believe, will be directly tied to our confidence in grace-based promises and provisions of our God. So if that's true, I'm, I'm offering that to you for consideration. Let's ask a few questions around us. So what? In responding to the growing pains that we see in the early church, What kind of growth and or growing pains are you experiencing? Or have you kind of arranged life so as to avoid that? It's a good question. Are you engaged spiritually or are you playing it safe? Or are you distracted? All of those are possibilities. They certainly have been true in my life at various points along the way. Are there course corrections that you need to make right now? And the beautiful thing is, I, like I love the freedom. This is what grace does is you can come to the Lord and go, you know what? I am off track. I'm off the rails. Get me back on track. You can invite him to do that and I know that he'll do it. He's utterly committed to that. 
I think as we look at the life of Stephen and the description that we have of him, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to ask, am I full? Am I controlled by, characterized by, in alignment with the Holy Spirit and grace and wisdom? Is that what characterizes my life? If not, once again, ask the Lord for that. He'd love to give you all of that that you're willing to take. And then lastly, are you experiencing the peace of God's presence? I'm not talking about circumstantial peace. I'm talking about a peace that Paul says transcends understanding. It is completely despite all of our circumstances, whatever it is that's going on in our life. Please take a moment, bring whatever there comes to mind, even if it's something else, just whatever it is, go to the Lord with that for just a moment or two. And then I will pray and close our time together. God, we're grateful to be a part of this community of faith, and we know that there is uh, plenty of growth needed in and around us, and so the first thing we say is we're, we're thankful for the growth that you have produced in us, and we invite you to, to continue doing that. Conform us to the image of your Son. Fill us, control us, align us with your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. Lord, help us to trust in you, your promises and your provisions. And then help us to walk in peace. Or would we be known as people of peace? Assured by the resurrection of Christ and Him coming again in eternity with you, Lord, would all of those things secure us so that we don't need the things of this world to give us peace. We have it in you. 
Lord, help us to walk as this early church did, imperfectly, but full of faith. Lord, use us as you used them. We pray that in Jesus' precious name.